NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio, for the way we live now. Thanks for joining us here at NapaBroadcasting.com and our continuing coverage of the Napa Valley Film Festival. We've all heard many stories about men and some women who have had encounters with the law while young and used that event to pull themselves up and make something of their lives. They're nice and powerful stories, but many of them only touch the surface. My guest today, Jimmy Santiago Baca, was 21 when convicted of drug charges and sent to the notorious Arizona State Prison. At the time, he was illiterate. Not just that he couldn't read or write, but he was essentially illiterate about the world around him. When he came out, some six and a half years later, he was on his way to becoming one of America's most important poets. What happened in between is a story not only of Jimmy's triumph, but of the triumph and importance of language to see, to explain, and to grasp the world. Jimmy's story is the subject of a documentary at this year's Napa Valley Film Festival. The film is A Place to Stand, and it is my pleasure to welcome Jimmy Santiago Baca to NapaBroadcasting.com. Jimmy, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I, I, I got in, and I've, had, I've met some great people here, and finally got some rest last night, and it's good to be here with you. Talk a little bit about your early story, first of all, just to give our listeners an overview of, of your life and a little bit about what got you into prison back when you were 21 years old. I, was, I, was, uh, I went to prison for uh, dealing heroin, um, and uh, I was 18, and uh, it took two years. I escaped from the sh- uh, We had a little shootout with the DEA, and um, I escaped, and... Um, went through a two-year hiatus uh, of whether they were going to extradite me back to Arizona. I escaped and went to New Mexico. And so it took two years. I was in the county jail for one year awaiting extradition, whether or not it was going to happen. And then on the last day um, that they had before their uh, adjudication for extradition expired, on the very last day, uh, they got somebody who I had no I didn't. I don't know who the guy was. But they pulled somebody out of some prison to say, yes, he, he sold it to me. So the very last day when I thought I was going to go home, I ended up being shackled and taken by the marshals to Arizona. And this was not some uh, friendly prison. This was a pretty tough place. It's where Blood In, Blood Out started. It's where they brought in the, 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 the Aryan Brotherhood, the Black Gorilla Family, the Mexican Mafia, La Familia. It's where they brought in all the gangs into uh, Arizona State Prison at Florence under a guy by the name of Warden Cardwell, who had uh, who had taken a tank in an Ohio prison, uh, he was he was a real he was a real get up and shoot him kind of guy. Uh, the authorities in Ohio said we can't uh, give the prison over to the inmates, but we have nobody w- that that knows what to do. So Warden Cardwell got a, got in a tank and drove it in the prison and just started shooting. And within minutes, uh, they took control of the prison and that. That was his uh, credentials for coming to Arizona. Well, if he did that, then we need him down here. And uh, uh, he was there a week when I walked in. And when I, after, a week after I walked into that prison, uh, somebody in my cell block murdered a guard. And I was, I was just turning 19 years old. And I didn't understand what, what, where I was at quite yet. I knew it was really bad. I just didn't know how bad. Um, and when they killed the guard, the National Guard was called in, 
And literally, two, they, they stripped us naked. They lined us up against the walls inside the cell block. And they were throwing stuff out of the cells from three tiers. They were throwing photographs and TVs and stuff. And one guy, two, two guys down from me, turned and looked. And he told the guard, he got really angry at the guard for throwing his family photograph down. And the National Guard blew his freaking head off. And his blood splattered all over my body. And I was thinking, my God, what kind of hell am I in, you know? This is only a week and a half after I got to prison at the age of 19. Thinking, what the hell, has, has, what's happening in my life, you know? So there I was with guards saying, if you turn around, you'll die. And I was just looking down with my hands against the wall, naked, thinking, where the hell am I? And talk about that and trying to process all this, not just because you were 19 and 20 years old, but because you had a limited understanding, as you've talked about, about the world around you. You didn't have a clear picture of how the world works. I didn't. I was homeless. And when you're homeless, you know, homelessness, you can approach it from a thousand different lenses. You can look at it from all different types on the compass. In my particular case, what was so injurious to my, to my soul was that I didn't know culture. I had no culture. I had no ceremony. I had no. You don't get up at eight o'clock because you're homeless. You have no culture. You don't. You don't sit at a table and eat with a fork in the morning. You have no culture. You have no customs. You don't know how to embrace somebody. There is no culture. No precedent to it. You don't. You don't. You've not, You haven't been touched in 15 years. There is no affection in this culture of homelessness. That's what the killer is. So, so I didn't know how people got a car. That's part of the culture of capitalism. I just thought that I, I resented all you people because you were given cars. You, you, somehow you were given a car and I wasn't. And somehow that kid driving with that mom in that car in a, on a, in a heated car on a December morning, I'm gonna beat the hell out of that kid because why is he in that heated car and I'm on this street corner at the age of 12 freezing with no jacket? I'm gonna get that dude because I was way out. I didn't know where anything came from. And that's a scary island to be living on because when you don't know anything about culture, then you have no story. You're an unknown entity and there's nothing worse in life than to be unknown. Even dirt, even dirt has an identity. And you, I didn't have any. How did that begin to change? when you were in prison? It started in the county jail waiting for extradition. I, when I stole, I was flirting with this girl at the desk who was a college student. And these two uh, detectives brought in a drunk Indian. Half of my, my whole family's Mexican Indian. And my father used to wear a talisman that, that was to protect his soul that my grandmother had given him. And they brought this old drunk in and he had one of those pouches around his neck. And the detectives started kicking the hell out of him and, they, they ripped the pouch from his neck, and the girl started laughing behind the desk. So when she turned around to get the guy's records, I stole. I, the only way I could get back at her was to reach through the bars and steal this big, thick college book. And strange how things work. I took it up to my cell to burn the pages to make coffee for the guys on my tier. And uh, I didn't realize it, but I saw one word. I didn't know how to read or write. I was 18 at the time, and I saw a word and it looked like the word dog. I could phonetically sound it out, dog. 
and I didn't want to tear that page out because I didn't know what the other words said, but I wanted to know if I could maybe maybe plod through it. So I began to kind of plod through it, and it was about a guy walking his dog around a pond, and I almost started crying because it reminded me of my village and my grandfather and I walking our dogs and sheep around the pond. I couldn't believe I couldn't believe what these words were doing in my mind. It was I was like it was like I was taking LSD. They were making pictures appear in my mind of my grandmother and my grandfather and my father. They were bringing things back in my head that I never thought would were, could could happen. Um, and then um, uh, and then I I pronounced the guy's name and the guys and I thought that he was a gangbanger. I thought this gangbanger had learned how to read and write, you know. Because you would never name your son this name unless he was in a gang. Because uh, we all used to see each other and say, hey, what's up? Word up, brother. Word up. Well, his name was Wordsworth. So I thought, well, then he must be in a gang, you know? And his mama must have mentioned he was Wordsworth, you know? Worth words. Word up, brother. Hey, what's up, Wordsworth? You know? It turned out to be he was an English romantic poet in the 1850s with Coleridge and Byron and Shelley and those people. And he turned out to be an extraordinary poet that I studied after that. But the book I stole by coincidence, as the angels would have it, was called um, The Romantic Poets. <laughs> <laughs> Had you stolen a different book, your life might have taken a different Thank direction. Thank I didn't steal a book on bank robbery or something. <laughs> you know, I would have really been in trouble. <laughs> Over time, it, it really, and I want to come back to what you were talking about in terms of, of the images that it created in your mind as you were figuring out those first words. And it really speaks to, to something that you've written about, talked about since, which is the power of language to, to really grasp and understand the world. Yeah. Language has this amazing, I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've come at language a thousand different ways and I can't explain it. I can't, I can't explain what language does. It's, um, it has the ability to reach through the darkest recesses of, of, uh, of the furthest vaults that we bury in our unconscious marrow of our bones and has the ability to open those vaults up and speak sacredness to us about our existence and about our worth. I don't know how to explain it. It's, uh, I, know that, I know that some of the strongest guys in prison were afraid of language. How did you begin to understand it? How did you begin to understand that language mattered? I wanted to write something to somebody I really loved. I wanted to write a poem to my grandmother. Also, you know, I wanted to write a poem to my grandmother about how much I loved her. Uh, because I know it sounds romantic and stuff, but in prison, I thought I was going to die tomorrow because I was a total asshole. I mean, you, if you told me to do something, I would I would try to spit in your face. And if you told me, get in line, I'd try to hit you. And if you told me, quit looking at me, I'd stare in your eyes until I until you, I mean, whatever you decided to tell me, I defied authority at every every at every turn and corner, at every quarter. I defied authority. I hated people. I hated you. I hated your color. I hated everything about people. And then when I would go into the sanctity of my cell and I would pronounce a word, it was like the word began to lick me the way a mother jaguar licks her cub. The word would begin to caress me, and I felt safe with the word. It was very strange that I thought, okay, okay, well, I take this word, and I'll put this word down next to this word. And then I'll be like, Wow. They just created this thing, this image, this metaphor. And if I put two more words next to that, I can actually 
go back to my village of Estancia where I was a boy throwing dirt clods at the water tank. And if I put that next to that, I can actually see my friend Mocoso come in and throw clods at the tank with me. And suddenly I began to create a story. And in the creating that story, I was now entering the hollowed halls of culture. Wow. I was actually creating a family that I didn't have. I was adopting a family that could go as far as the world went. Wow. And these people didn't mock me. They didn't ridicule me. They didn't jeer at me. They didn't hurt me. They loved me. That when I created this world, it was a world that welcomed me. Now, God, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow. And after a while, I would come out of my cell. The guards thought I was on drugs because I would come out smiling. I was loved in a prison cell. I was creating people that loved me. And I was like, my God. And I'd come out, and the guard would say, what are you smiling at? I'd be like, nothing. Well, wipe it off your face. And I would be like, I love you, man. <laughs> that commercial, I love you, man, I love you. <laughs> Just as you thought, and you talk about other prisoners thought language was a dangerous thing. They didn't oh want to mess God. with it. The prison guards and the prison authorities didn't like what you were doing. Oh, gosh. They you were know, terrified. I don't, I don't want to belabor this issue because it's, it's becoming such an issue in the media now. But, yeah. The guards came in. They broke all my teeth. I have all my teeth brushed. I had I had a bone surgery on all my gums several times. I got my chin all broken and wired up. These are people. When I was 19, I was getting kicked. I was getting beat up to the point of death. I got my ribs broken. I got my skull cracked. Uh, the guards and I just told the guards, you know, I don't care if you kill me. You know, I mean, I don't have anybody out there anyway. I ain't got no family. I'm a homeless kid. So kill me, but I'm not. I'm not gonna give in to you. So while you're kicking me and killing me, I'm gonna try to spit blood in your face because you're not gonna kill me. I mean, you can kill me, but you know, and you know, I'm not gonna stop writing. I'm not gonna stop reading. And the guards were like terrified. And then what happened was through language, you have this extraordinary reciprocal cycle that that recycles you to the other point of view. That's what language does for you. That's so beautiful which the Nazis could have learned, and that is to see life from the other person's perspective, right? And the Jewish one, right? So to see that they were humans, that they had dreams, and you know, that sort of thing. And I, when the guards would come in, I, I began not to be so angry. And I would say to them, you probably don't like working here, do you? Because I always would attack them, and then I would say, you don't like working here. And then they began to, they began to really like me as their counselor, which is really bizarre. I had to write about that. I became their counselor, the guard's counselor, and they would come in and talk about how hopeless and sorrowful their lives were. And then they would start bringing in chilies for me, green chilies and peppers that I liked. And some even said, you want me to bring you in some drugs or a gun? And I said, no, no, I quit all the drugs. I quit the guns. I quit the violence. And they were like, you know, you're not going to make it out of here. You know they're going to kill you, right? And I said, well, that's what they intend to do, but I don't know why they're going to. And then that went on and on with me and the warden saying, you're never going to leave here unless you obey, you know, that whole thing. And part of obeying was not getting educated. Part of obeying was not spending oh, all that time reading. God, I got stabbed because, uh, number one, the, uh, the, it was the administration first, the warden. I'll never forget when I went to his office one day, I had a, a red ink pen in my pocket. And he said, oh, you like blood, don't you, huh? After seeing the red ink pen and then beat the shit out of me. He just beat the hell out of me. 
for having a red ink pen. I couldn't walk for a month, and my I could barely see because my eyes were so puffed up. But I got back to the cell, and then uh, and then and then he uh, would send me a reclassification committee, and uh, I refused to go to work unless I could go to school. And then and then guys would come down to my cell and they would say the warden sent me down here, and it, you know you can't write and you can't read because my job is to to. To, to sodomize you, beat, kill you, whatever. But you're not going to read. You're not going to leave your light on at night. I'm not going to let you do that. And I would tell the guy, dude, you don't have to come in my cell, you know? You don't have to do what the warden says. You can leave. You can go. Just go. You don't have to be here. I mean, this is my cell. And he would say, well, it's not yours anymore. It's mine. So we went through, like, they sent blacks down to my cells. You're not supposed to black the cell with a Chicano's not supposed to sell with a black or a white guy. They sent white guys. I'd be like, what are you doing here? They sent other rival Chicanos and Mexicans. I said, Oye, come on, hombre. ¿Qué tienes, hombre? No tienes que mover para acá dentro conmigo, hombre. Aviéntate, vámonos. And they say, No, they say, the, the warden's going to let me go out on minimum security status. But don't come in my cell and do this to me, man. So as soon as the gate opened, I spent the next three years in isolation for fighting. And, and on my reports, it has fighting. And, of course, I couldn't get out and do anything. So I, I, I was kept in isolation and, and, and in the dungeon for five years for fighting because I wanted to have my own cell to read and write. And I did, you know. How did you finally get out? A guy from Tucson, Will Inman and Rex Veter and uh, Denise Levertov and Grace Paley and uh, Adrian Rich and a whole battery of writers, Norman Mailer, God bless him, and uh, other other guys who are nameless, anonymous people in soup lines that had enough uh, compassion to sit and write cards to the legislature. And they went and they said, if you if this man dies, it's on your hands. So, um, so some lawyer in Boston filed something and got me out on cruel and unusual double punishment or something. And one day they came and they said, after I'd been there six, almost six years, I was only supposed to serve five, and he kept me there for a year longer, because they're pretty much the tyrants. It's a it's a it's a dictatorship. What the mm -hmm. warden wants to do, he'll do, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's, a, it's that's just the short end of it. How so. did you come to poetry? I mean, you talked about getting into stories and understanding the power of stories and and creating this world within the context of stories. How did how did poetry come to be part of what you wanted to do? I don't know. It just seemed to me that that was the book, the books I had. I just, you know, books float around prison. It just seemed that I had books of poetry, and I started reading them, and and um, started with that romantic book of poetry mm -hmm. that I stole. And then from when I went to prison, I was down in the basement, uh, what they call the dungeon, and the guys on death row on the other side would would get, would send their books over to me, and you wouldn't believe how many guys that are going to death read poetry. It's just, it's crazy. And not only that, most of the guys that were going to be fried were reading people like Emily Dickinson. You would think they would read somebody like Hemingway, right? Kind of, kind of staunchify their, their, you know. Their macho credentials. Their macho-ness, right? No, they were reading uh, Emily Dickinson and Madame Bovary and some of the English romantic poets and stuff like that. So I was getting all their, po their books. And it was really cool because I was like, wow, I cannot believe these poets. And um, and then, of course, poetry was was my way of 
speaking to myself and to the world and to it was it was it was poetry was was for somebody as traumatized and dysfunctional and as damaged as I was no other language could really reach me except poetry you know poetry reached me and I was able to get up off the ground and poetry said come on just let's just walk on this road for a while how does that trauma, how does that experience impact you today in the work that you do and in the, in the life that you live? It's an everyday struggle. I mean, uh, once, uh, once, once, you're, once, you're, um, once you're told by your mother that you're trash, that you're just, you're really trash. That once your mother takes you out and puts you in the trash can like she did me at the age of three or four, once she puts you in the trash can and says you're garbage, and then you go through institutions, and you're not connected to anybody in an emotional way, you're just a, an, a, a, you're an article. This is, this is the bunk for the article, these are the clothes for the article, this is where you walk as an article, and this is where you eat as an article. But you're not a human being. You never get over that. So you try doing drugs for 20 years. You know, you do a lot of really good coke and you smoke a lot of really great bud. And you try, you try to create the abyss. You try to fill the abyss with the mist of drug addiction. It never does. It never goes away. It's there every single morning. And the best thing you can do is just get up in the morning and, and uh, walk the road as you are. And, and, and embrace the people that welcome you and just ignore the people who don't. Just make your life out of what you have. And that's all I got. And I do have a beautiful family. I've got five incredible kids, really successful as human beings. I've got an amazing wife who's the most beautiful woman that ever walked the earth. I've got a family around the globe of people who love me. And I, and I, have, I have companies, I have nonprofit companies, I have for-profit companies. And I do work all across the world, teacher training. I have internships, scholarship programs. I've got an organic farm with retreat houses for guys coming out of prison who need to finish their book. I have online training for, for people. I have over 40 classroom modules that we sell worldwide. There's an amazing amount of things that I do that I love. And it's just a big family. I need a big family. I can't, I can't, I don't, I can't live in a small family. I was so... Uh, ignored and neglected that I need about 7 million people to be in my family. <laughs> I have 7 million brothers and sisters. <laughs> Tell us a little about the documentary that is screening here at the festival. <clears throat> you got to go see it. Let me say one thing. I'll underscore that 20 times. Go see. Get up. Get out. Come on. Bring your wine. Bring your buddies. Bring your pals. Bring your friends. Bring your family. Bring whoever. Come out and see a place to stand. It's an extraordinary feature documentary by Daniel Glick and Gabe Baca. I had very little to do with it, but... Uh, it's, a, it's from one of my books, and um, uh, I've got 29 books in 32 languages, I think. And um, A Place to Stand is probably by far the best seller globally. It's all over. And, uh, and, and they did an incredible job, these young kids. And you've got to come see it. It'll rack you. It'll, it'll rack the rafters of your unconscious mind. And when you walk out, you'll walk out a completely different person's shed of all fear. What's it like for you watching it? I don't. I can't. I, I've, I've, I've done a couple of movies, you know, where I'm in in Hollywood, and I won't watch those. 
and I won't watch the place to stand. I did with my wife. I sat down in the chair and watched it. And I cried so hard that I got scared. So I can't watch it. Jimmy Santiago Baca, the film A Place to Stand, the documentary, will be screening four times here at the Napa Valley Film Festival. Jimmy, I thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com.